Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen, live reacting to the news that Zachary Levi will play Kurt Warner in a new movie. Yeah, and that's the big breaking news here on the Masson Orioles podcast. It got me thinking, Brendan, who would play you in a film about the life of Brendan Mortensen? I said Danny DeVito. <laughs> I just think it would be fun. If he lost some weight, perhaps. No offense to Danny DeVito. And gained like a foot of height. And regained his hair. Right. Yeah. I think it could work. Um, Of the entire cast of It's Always Sunny, I think Danny DeVito is probably the least likely to... I think um, the actress that plays D is probably more likely to play you than Danny DeVito would be. That would be great too. Yeah. I'd see that movie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What would it be called? I don't know, probably something relatively boring. I feel like I haven't led the most exciting life out there. I don't know you if got anybody time. would want to make a movie out of me. You got time. Yeah. You know, I suggested Timothy Chalamet, you know. <laughs> yeah. Have you gotten any comparisons? I'm tr- I've been trying to think, and I really don't know if I have. Okay. I can't think of one. Yeah. If anybody watching would like to think of one and please. comment along, yeah. um, just please don't have it be really mean. It's going to be really mean. Uh, mine would be the old man from Up. Really? Although he's really more of a, you know, cartoon character. Right. Pixar character. Than Some a, have said that, yeah. Yeah. Than, than a real... Do you see any for me that come to, the, come to mind? I'm Apparently, to according to our comments, Grayson Rodriguez would yeah. play me. I think Grayson Rodriguez would be the perfect actor. Grayson Rodriguez, if he were on his knees for the entire movie, would still be taller than I am. Yes. Probably, in real life. It would work. So we get Grayson Rodriguez... Like, really slouched over for your movie. We get Danny DeVito on stilts for mine. And a wig. And yeah. a wig. Yeah. Right. But put him through, like, rigorous, you know, training beforehand to get him yeah. into shape. Uh, how about that start from Spencer Watkins yesterday, Brendan? Surprisingly really good. Very good. Out of Spencer Watkins. And I think we were both a little curious about the move to have Spencer Watkins start that game, but... Turned out well. Play uh, Worked really well. So well, in fact, he's going to get another turn in the rotation. At least one more yeah. turn in the rotation. He that's, deserves one. That's what happens when you go five innings and allow just one run against a Blue Jays lineup that has four All-Stars in their first five hitters yeah. in the lineup. Pretty good start. Um, and look, if, if it lasts, that's great. But just to get to the fifth inning, give your bullpen a little bit of a break, get a W in the first game of this homestand, not bad. Yeah, Good way did, to start things off. He did not look entirely confident in the first inning. I think we were a little worried after the first few batters. His command was not quite there, and he gave up a really loud out to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and it looked like things might go off the rails pretty quickly. But he pretty quickly turned things around and got into a groove, and for the next four innings, it was smooth sailing. And uh, Spencer with an S is how he goes, according to Jemai yes. Jones uh, on Instagram. And... Brendan, that, that prompts another question for you. If you could, what, what letter would you change in your name? What you could, letter would I change in my name? What about like Brendan with an I at, instead of the A at the end of the name? Ooh, that would be weird. I hate that. Yeah. When we were out That's to dinner on the, the 4th of July, uh, the waiter was named Brandon. And uh, Brendan and Brandon. When he introduced himself, yeah. uh, my girlfriend said, oh, his name is Brendan. Brandon, Brendan. And the waiter mirthlessly, entirely without a smile, just said different names. <laughs> well, look. So apparently Brendan's and Brandon's don't get along. So do you now... It's not that Brendan and Brandon's don't get along. Do you it's Im- that growing up, going to public school, if, if there is a first day of class and there is a Brendan and a Brandon in your class, it's a nightmare. Because it will yeah. take weeks, potentially months, for that teacher to figure out that A, Brendan and Brandon are two different names, and B, that you are, in fact, two different people. Yeah. Were you a Brendan M because there were other Brendans in the class? I was occasionally. There yeah. weren't too many Brendans that went to school with me. Yeah. Uh, but there, there were also some Brandons. Yeah, I get that. So yeah. I guess you have a beef with uh, Brandon Hyde. Well, I don't. <laughs> I think if... Good to know. I, I think if somebody was like, hey, 
we were in the same place, I think they would know that we were two different people. So I don't, I don't think yeah. that would be there's really um, an issue. There's not much that, well, if you shaved your head. You play Brandon Hyde in the movie about Brandon Hyde. Brandon life. Hyde plays me in my movie. <laughs> we're Brandon good to go. Hyde again with a wig. Yes. <laughs> on his knees and you on stilts. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to talk in a little bit about uh, the MLB draft, which is coming up on Sunday. Ooh. Snuck up on us, Brandon. It really did. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot to, to prepare for as the Orioles hold the number five overall pick. Going to talk about some candidates that they could take there. And then later on in the podcast, we're going to have Sarah Langs of MLB join the podcast to talk about the first ever MLB draft combine, which happened a few days ago in North Carolina. So stick around for that conversation. Uh, So first, Brendan, let's dive into the overarching themes for this draft, because last couple drafts that Mike Elias has had, he has had an opportunity to take a franchise cornerstone with the first pick in his first year and then the second pick in his second year. Now he's got the fifth overall pick in a draft that still is pretty loaded, but there is a large difference between the first and second pick and a pick that's fifth that probably doesn't have the same kind of upside that a number one pick might have. That's true. However, I think with this draft, it's a very deep class in the top 13, I would say, but I don't think there is a consensus number one, number two overall player. I think in years past, there have been the top few picks where you know those guys are the best prospects in the draft. There could be three or four guys that go number one overall to the Pittsburgh Pirates. We still have no idea who the Pirates are going to take with that number one overall pick because there's just not a consensus at the top. So I think at number five, you can kind of just wait and see who falls because there are probably seven or eight players that are worthy of a top five pick in this draft. I don't know if there's a player that in past years you would say this is a guy who you need to take with the number one overall pick but there's probably seven or eight that are worthy of a top five pick. Yeah, I think that there's a first tier. And like when we look back at like the Adley Rutschman draft in 2019, I think it was like the first tier was Adley and Bobby Witt Jr. And then the second tier was a lot of other good players like an Andrew Vaughn and those type of guys. But the first tier was pretty clearly one of those two guys. And so long as the Orioles got one of those two guys, they were set. For this one, it feels like that first tier, they're probably, like you said, five or six guys in that realm and not to say that the Orioles will take any one of those guys, but at least in our mind, in the third party media perspective, so long as they come out of the draft with one of those five guys, I think that it's, you know, they won't get their pick of them, but they could still end up with an impact player. And there's a very similar situation to last year. Last year, you kind of had that first tier of Spencer Torkelson and then maybe Austin Martin, you can include in that tier. But there were also guys like Heston Kerstad who, while they may have been the sixth or seventh best prospect in the draft, you could still get a deal for them and they could still be an impact player going forward. Obviously, we haven't gotten to see Heston Kerstad yet, but there are a lot of guys in this draft that are maybe somewhere in the seven to 10 range in terms of quality of prospect that you could take with a top five pick and still get a really good value for and be a very good player. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive into immediately... Some of the names that you've probably heard and we've gone through on previous podcasts, but let's give a little bit of a deeper analysis into some of these guys. And I think in our minds, the top tier, let me know if you disagree at all with this. I got Jack Leiter, Kumar Rocker, Henry Davis, Jordan Lawler, and then Marcelo Mayer are probably, I think, the best five players in this draft. Yes, I with one disagreement, I think I would put personally... Khalil Watson in that top tier. And I think if I were to bump someone out, it would be Kumar Rocker. Okay. I like Kumar Rocker a lot. There's just some issues that have popped up this year that I think bounces him just slightly out of that top tier. My top five, I would have Mayer, Leiter, Lawler, Henry Davis, and then Khalil Watson. Right. Rounding out that top tier. But I think Kumar Rocker is certainly still deserving of being... Uh, somewhere in the top seven in terms of picks. So Kumar Rocker, one of the two Vanderbilt pitchers along with Jack Leiter, somebody who, since he was a freshman, at the time he was a freshman when he won the College World Series with Vanderbilt, some thought he would be, by the time he was draft eligible, he would be the no-doubt, surefire, number one overall pick. And some things have, not like he's been terrible since then, 
But he hasn't quite been as good, I think, and as dominant as people expected he would be considering how good he was as a freshman. Yeah, when you throw a 19-strikeout no-hitter as a freshman in the College World Series, the expectations are going to be pretty lofty. When your head coach compares you to Bob Gibson... <laughs> Your expectations Look, are going to be pretty lofty. Tim Tim Corbin likes to uh, likes to make those comparisons that yes. are pretty lofty. Yeah, and, and Kumar Rocker, I think, is still going to be a number one starter in the big leagues. He still has that kind of potential. His biggest issue at this point, and the reason that he's not a number one, number two overall prospect, is his command. His pitches are really good. He has a good fastball, and his breaking stuff is incredible. His slider is wipeout. Jack Leiter said his slider is the best breaking ball he's ever seen. (laughs) If he can get his commands down, which is something he can work on throughout the minor leagues, he still has the stuff to be a number one starter in the major leagues. It's just the command issues right now and the fact that over the course of his junior year, he was not as good as most people expected him to be. And when you're talking about guys at the very top of the draft, of course, we're just picking nits here. You know, these yeah. are all nitpicks that we have with these guys because you look at his numbers, 13 and 3, 258 ERA and 18 starts, 13 strikeouts per nine. These all in his junior year in 2021, a .896 whip uh, and four and a half strikeouts per walk. So it's not like he was walking, you know, a ton of guys out there. It's not like he had an ERA in the fives. We're just, when you're talking about a pick that's in the top five, you want to make sure that you get that right. And that's, those are the potential reasons that we could see Kumar Rocker fall. Yeah, the command issues didn't really come up in walks. They came up more of he missed over the plate where he shouldn't have missed. And that got him into trouble sometimes. But he still had some really good starts this year. He had a 14 strikeout, eight inning performance in his first SEC start against South Carolina. And he had a complete game with eight strikeouts against fourth ranked Mississippi State. So he obviously still has the stuff. There are just more question marks that came up in his junior year than people expected. We're getting comments as well as we are live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Some people are saying we need to draft Rocker at number five. Somebody saying Leiter is going number one. So let's transition to Jack Leiter. Some think he is the best prospect in this draft, but for certain reasons, he probably, uh, not probably, may not get drafted number one overall. uh, He he won't. You don't think he will? I don't think he will. I think the Pirates, from everything I've been seeing, are mm-hmm. pretty much down to position players right now. Right. So, um, Jack Leiter on that same Vanderbilt staff, 21 years old. He's a draft-eligible sophomore. He is the son of Al Leiter, the 19-year uh, MLB vet, the, the lefty. Just about as dominant, if not more so. They had the exact same number of strikeouts Leiter and Rocker did. Uh, in their junior seasons on that Vanderbilt staff, a team that came within one win of another College World Series title. Um, Lighter, I think, is viewed as the safer thing of those two pitchers. Yeah, it, it, it was funny how it transitioned from Kumar Rocker was the consensus top pitching prospect coming into the year, and now Jack Lighter is the consensus top pitching prospect going into the draft after his season. His fastball is unbelievable. It sits around 95, and it can top out at 97. He has a ridiculous amount of vertical break on his fastball, which just shouldn't happen for a kid that age. The metrics behind his fastball are unbelievable. He needs to improve his secondary pitches a little bit. He's got a pretty good 12-6 curveball and a good slider, and he had a good changeup in high school that he never used in college. So if he can improve those secondary pitches throughout the minor leagues, I think just like Kumar Rocker, he has a chance to be the ace of a rotation going forward. And while he probably will not be the number one overall pick by the Pirates, it's likely that he is going to be gone by the time the Orioles pick at number five. We're going to give our mock drafts through the first five picks in a few, but I think a lot of you know national mock drafts have Lighter going in that top four and the probably the lowest he falls being the Red Sox at number four, which would kind of hurt because, you know, division rival, you're facing Jack Leiter 19 times a season for potentially a lot of seasons. I would be surprised if he falls past the Rangers at two. I would be utterly floored if he falls past the Boston Red Sox at four. Yeah. I don't think there's any way he gets past Boston. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some other guys who may be taken over Jack Leiter or Kumar Rocker and... We heard Brad Selick, who is heading up this Orioles draft, say a few days ago, it is high school shortstop heavy. 
We have a ton of prep shortstops that could go within that top five. And there's a chance that one of those guys will be available for the Orioles at number five. But I think it's probably general consensus. Again, may not go number one overall, but I think a lot of draft pundits have Marcelo Mayer, 18 years old, California high school kid, uh, who's a lefty at the plate, righty in the field, have him going or have him at least as the top talent in this draft. Yeah, there's a pretty good chance that he could get a decent deal from the Pirates at number one. They could sign him for, I think, a little bit under slot, but there's Mm -hmm. also a chance that he's just the best prospect in this draft. I think it's a toss-up, at least for the shortstop position between Marcelo Mayer and Jordan Lawler, and a lot of people have Mayer. He's really, really smooth. He doesn't have a scouting tool under 55, so his power, hitting, running, arm, fielding, and overall all at least a 55, according to MLB Pipeline. He's really smooth at shortstop. He's drawn comparisons defensively to guys like Manny Machado and Brandon Crawford. And at the plate, he's drawn a lot of comparisons to Corey Seager. So he's getting a lot of really good pro comparisons. He was fantastic in his senior year of high school. I think there's a pretty good chance he goes number one overall. I think his floor is probably number three to the Tigers. Yeah, casually just compared to three of the best shortstops exactly. in the game for the last yeah. five or ten years. Uh, yeah, he is he is generally considered to be uh, one or two. The other guy being Jordan Lawler, who is a Vanderbilt commit, um, 18 years old, turns 19 a week after the draft, uh, Texas Jesuit prep. Um, he is in a, in a similar mold, and I think that he bats righty, and I think that those two guys, a lot of people say, are you know right neck and neck, but the edge tends to go to Mayer because I think more people are confident in his hitting tools translating, whereas both these guys, they think, are going to be solid defensive shortstops, but they're just slightly more confident in Mayer at the plate. Yeah, and Mayer seems to be the safer prospect. Mayer just does everything really well, and Jordan Lawler, while he has, I think, a higher ceiling, it's a little bit riskier if you're going with Lawler. He's also pretty strongly committed to Vanderbilt, which is interesting. I think he is still going to sign with whatever team drafts him, but it might take a little bit of a bigger deal to get him away from Vanderbilt because he seems very committed to wanting to play college baseball. Yeah, I mean, there is... I think that teams will judge that, you know, based on where he goes. I think that depends on, you know, if you're taken in the top five, odds are you're going to sign with your team because that team is going to offer you a lot of money. There's a lot of prestige with being taken in the top five. Whereas if he were viewed as maybe a back end of the first round or a second round talent, he probably would maybe, you know, at least more strongly consider his commitment to Vanderbilt. That's what happened with Jack Leiter. A couple years ago in 2019, he was considered an end of the first round, beginning of the second round prospect, had the commitment to Vanderbilt, and so he falls all the way to the 20th round. To me, that's not going to happen with Jordan Lawler. Um, And I think that because from our perspective, it seems like he's not going to fall to the 20th round, it sounds like teams are pretty confident that whoever drafts him will be able to sign him. I think there's a chance he falls out of the top five. I don't think he falls much further than that. I think his floor is probably seven or eight if he does fall out of the top five. Yeah. Um, All right. So we have covered some guys that could go in the top five. Who are we missing here? Henry Davis. Henry Davis. Uh, Before we get into Henry Davis, should we start the catcher conversation? We might have to. We might have to. So we might have to. Henry Davis, 21 year old junior catcher from Louisville. Uh, Outstanding hitter. Hit 370 with Louisville, 15 homers. Uh, he had, I think he had a hit in all but three games yeah. uh, with Louisville this past season. He uh, had a 21-game hit streak to start the season, then went one game without a hit, then had a 16-game hitting streak. Yeah. Some could think he could go number one overall. If he falls to number five, the Orioles might pull the trigger on him. And again, we touched on it last week when it comes to the catcher conversation, but we can get a little bit of a deeper dive here. Because if the Orioles do go with Henry Davis at number five, that is no way an indictment of Adley Rutschman. That no way means that they're going to trade Adley Rutschman. That doesn't mean that they don't think that he's going to be their catcher for a long time. I will say this. If this 2021 season has shown you anything as a Baltimore Orioles fan, it's that you can't have too many good catchers. (laughs) Well, and you just can't have too many good players, period. Yeah. I don't know if Henry Davis falls to number five. A lot of people, from what I've seen, think that if the Red Sox don't get Jack Leiter at four, they probably go Henry Davis at four if he's still available. 
So I don't know if Henry Davis even gets to the Orioles, and I don't know if this is a conversation that we need to have. But bottom line, the Orioles need good baseball players. Henry Davis is a very good baseball player. He's probably the best college bat in the draft. He hit 370 with 15 home runs this year, a 482 on base percentage, a 663 slugging percentage. He should be able to stick at catcher, but he's also a good enough athlete that he could potentially do a corner outfield, maybe move to third base. So just because you are drafting a catcher doesn't mean he is going to stick at catcher forever. Yeah. There have been a ton of guys who have been drafted in the top of the first round because their bat is too good to pass up on, and then you figure out their defensive position whenever you need to figure out their defensive position. Yeah. He has pretty good speed for a catcher as well. He stole 10 bases this year. Right. Uh, and when he, while he may be gone by the time the Orioles pick, there's also another uh, high school uh, from Georgia ca- uh, catcher who might get taken named Harry Ford. Yes. So, you know... This, ca- this question, even if Henry Davis is off the board, may come back up if the Orioles are considering Harry Ford on a discount. Um, so there, you mentioned the, the guys that have been drafted as catchers and have not stuck at that position. It is a fairly common thing. Bryce Harper in 2010, of course, the biggest example. Uh, Jason Wirth back in 1997, drafted by the Baltimore Orioles in the first round as a catcher, did not stick at that position, ends up becoming an outfielder, and his bat was good enough. Uh, Kyle Schwarber in 2014, drafted as a catcher by the Chicago Cubs, doesn't stay at that position. Craig Biggio, though he played catcher in the big leagues, switches positions because his bat was obviously good enough and they needed him at different positions. So that does not mean that just because they draft somebody and his name, the position next to his name on draft day is catcher, does not mean he's going to stick at that position. Ryan Mountcastle, drafted as a shortstop. Yeah. You draft guys who are good baseball players, and then you figure out the defensive position later because it's so far down the line. It's not like the NBA or NFL draft where you can't draft a position where you already have a starter. Right. It's the MLB draft where the guys that you're picking might not make their major league debuts for three or four years. Yeah. So you figure out what they're going to play as they move throughout the minor leagues. And if the Orioles draft Henry Davis... Maybe he sticks at catcher. I think he has a pretty good chance to stick at catcher in the major leagues, regardless of what team he goes to. So maybe you have a backup catcher for Adley Rutschman who can also play some first base, can also DH for you, and then maybe in a pinch you put him in a corner outfield. Right. You just figure it out because the player is good enough to have on your team and eventually have in your lineup. And that's also part of the reason that we've seen Adley Rutschman get a few starts at first base at the double-A buoy level so that he can have that theoretical position change if he needs it. Let's say that the Orioles do take a catcher here. In theory, they could move, you know, Harry Ford or Henry Davis around the diamond, and they could put Adley Rutschman at first if they want to give him a night off from behind the plate. So anything can happen. Don't don't take this as any kind of indictment on Adley if they do take a catcher. Exactly. Um, All right. Whew. Who else should we talk about, Brendan, that you think is deserving and may get taken with that top five? How about Khalil Watson? Khalil Watson is kind of, he's just outside of that top tier of shortstops. That includes Marcelo Mayer and Jordan Lawler. He is, I almost want to put him in that tier. I don't think he's quite as good as those two. I think he's in a tier of his own somewhere in the middle. I think he's a better prospect than somebody like Brady House but he's not quite as good as Mayer or Jordan Lawler. He's undersized. He's five foot nine, 180 pounds. Again, he has every scout grade of at least a 55, his running grade being the highest at 65. He has a ton of power, even though he's kind of got a short, compact swing, but he's got a ton of power. He just plays the game with his hair on fire, and he would be such a fun pick for the Orioles. He has an aggressive approach at the plate that will probably need to get corrected as he moves throughout the minor leagues because he just tries to hit home runs, but it's been working for him so far. I mean, he's a great athlete. He can probably stick at shortstop. I think there's a chance he moves to second base because of his size, but he has the athletic ability to stick it short. I think this is a really good possibility for the Orioles at number five. You get a premier position and somebody that I think can translate really well into the majors in a few years. Yeah, and how much he costs, I think, will be a factor here like it will with all these picks. But I think if he is on the board, I think the Orioles will probably be pretty tempted. Um, You mentioned Brady House. He's another one who's probably a fringe candidate to be considered for this number five overall pick. Um, Other than that, a few names that, you know, we should probably introduce you to, like we introduced a, a couple names on the last podcast. Um, uh, Brady House is, is a uh, another prep 
shortstop, probably not going to stick there long-term, probably going to be a third baseman long-term. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got Colton Kowser, who, of course, we interviewed Jay Sirianni, his head coach, Sam Houston State outfielder, who could be somebody in the mold of a Heston Kerstad. He's kind of, in my mind, a, a combination of Heston Kerstad and Hudson Haskin. He's got the alliteration, Colton Kowser, Hudson Haskin. You yeah. know, he's got that part. He's speedy. He's got that in common with Hudson Haskin. And, of course, he probably would cost a little bit less than some of the guys we already talked about, which means the Orioles could, in theory, go under slot on somebody like Colton Kowser, save that money for later in the draft. Yeah, his pro comparison is somebody like Brandon Nimmo of the New York Mets. He's a good, speedy, contact-hitting outfielder. He's probably not going to hit for a ton of power, but he would just be a solid addition to the Orioles outfield. Yeah, and then there are a couple pitchers, and I think that we tend to... Our thinking, at least from this side of the table, is that we don't think that they're going to go with one of these underslot pitchers. There are a couple of guys, though, that they could take. Jackson Job, who's a high school pitcher, uh, Ty Madden from Texas, Sam Bachman. There are some guys that they could go with. It just doesn't feel like they're going to go that direction, Brendan. Yeah, we're getting a ton of comments on Facebook, Paul, saying that the Orioles need pitching with a bunch of exclamation points. I don't know if they need pitching that badly also this current mlb team this current orioles team needs pitching yes the orioles team of three or four years from now may not considering they have grayson rodriguez and dl hall and all these guys ready to make their debuts and that's not to say that the orioles shouldn't consider a pitcher at number five i think if jack Leiter falls to number five there's a pretty good chance that he ends up a baltimore oriole i think there's a good chance that kumar rocker falls to number five i don't know if the orioles take him there because there are just I think, personally, better options than Kumar Rocker with the fifth overall pick. I know Kumar Rocker coming into the season was the consensus must-have this guy. I mean, there were talks of, like, would you just tank for Kumar Rocker in a shortened season? He's not the same prospect that people thought he was going to be. Everyone was projecting Kumar Rocker. Not saying he's not worthy of the number five pick. I just think there might be better options there for the Orioles. He's a bigger name. And I think that's why a lot of fans probably gravitate towards him because you don't know, you didn't watch Marcelo Mayer, Jordan Lawler play at the high school level, but you may have watched the College World Series for a couple of years. He's the most famous player in college baseball. Yeah, it makes sense. He's also the the son of a former NFL player uh, in Tracy Rocker, who is also the defensive line coach for the Philadelphia Eagles currently. So he's got, uh, yeah, he's got, Obviously, a whole lot of talent, and it's funny that those two Vanderbilt pitchers come from former professional athletes and Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker. Yeah, and at the top of the draft, you try to build up the middle. Are there good catchers? Are there good shortstops? Are there good center fielders? And we heard Brad Selig say it. There are a lot of good shortstops, and in Henry Davis, there is a very good catcher. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Orioles continue to try to work their way up the middle. And if somebody doesn't work out at shortstop, you move them to a different position. If somebody doesn't work out at catcher, you move them to a corner outfield. But at least you try to start there. Right. Uh, You talked to Benny Montgomery as well, um, who is a high school shortstop from Pennsylvania. High school center fielder. Or center fielder, sorry. Somewhere up the middle. Yeah. 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 Um, Very speedy. The concerns would probably be with his hit tool, but you came away impressed from the interview. I did. He is a he's a very raw prospect. He's got really good speed and really good power, and he's six foot four. There yeah. aren't a ton of major league center fielders at that size. There's pretty much Cody Bellinger and Kyle Lewis are yeah. the only two that come to mind that are six foot four playing center field. He seems very confident that he can stick there because he is really, really fast. Some scouts have given him the maximum grade of 80, and he has been flying up draft boards recently. I saw him yesterday in a mock draft at number six, (laughs) and this is somebody who a lot of people thought was maybe the 14th, 15th best prospect in the draft. So I think Benny Montgomery has a chance to really shoot up draft boards, and don't be shocked if the Orioles try to underslot him at number five. Right. It's a power-hitting center fielder with a lot of speed, and if you think that his swing projects to the major league level, you could be getting a really, really good player for underslot at number five. Absolutely. Uh, One other kind of general thing I want to talk about is the idea of a high school player versus a college player. Because I think a lot of people, when they see a team take a high school player, they tend to think, well, we're not going to see this guy for a long time. He doesn't line up with our rebuild. They take a college player, they think, well, they're maybe they're going for the immediate need over, over you know, long-term need. That's that's just not the case. The, the Orioles, I expect to take the best player available 
We don't know what the Orioles' exact timeline is. We don't know exactly when these guys are going to peak. We don't know when Grayson Rodriguez's debut will be, let alone when he has his first breakout all-star season. You know, so the the kind of the idea that they go with a certain position or a certain age, and that says something about where they see themselves, I think that that's overblown. You take the best player at the best price, and the idea of lining up with your timeline, I think that's just kind of bogus. The MLB draft is really hard to project what players are going to do in a few years. You just never really know what's going to... I mean, look at Heston Kerstad. He hasn't even been able to play a minor league game yet. You just never know what's going to happen. And at the top of the draft, really the best you can do is to just try and draft the best player available. And I think the Orioles are going to do that regardless of whether it's a college player or a high school player. Yeah. You just go for the best available player and see what happens. Yeah, if you're trying to match up a draft pick with your timeline, I think you're overthinking it exactly. at a certain point. So they could, I, that being said, I think that they could go with a college guy just as likely as they go with a high school guy. I agree. There's, there's no difference there. Um, all right, should we get into our mock drafts? Let's do it. All right, just through the top five. We're not doing all, all 30 teams. I yeah. don't think that that's, uh, that would take too long. Brendan, do you want to start us off with the number, who you think is going to go number one? This is who we think not, uh, is going to go, not who we think should go. I'm going to go Henry Davis. All right. With the number one overall To the Pittsburgh pick. Pirates? To the Pittsburgh Pirates. Am I overthinking this one? Probably. But looking at the Pirates' top 30 prospects, I think they're probably just going to go best player available, and I think that's why it's kind of a toss-up for me between Henry Davis and Marcelo Mayer. But the case for Davis, I think he's the best college hitter in the draft. And when you look at the Pirates' top 30 prospects, they currently have Key Brian Hayes at the major league level at third base. They've got Nick Gonzalez as their number one overall prospect at second. And then they've got O'Neill Cruz, who is their number three overall prospect. And he's, just, he's a shortstop prospect. I don't think he's going to stick at shortstop because he's six foot seven, but everybody just keeps waiting for him to not have the ability to play shortstop anymore. And he just keeps doing it and he's just still con consistently pretty good so if you've got two top prospects in the top 50 of major league baseball in the infield and then you have cabrian hayes who was recently in the top 50 prospects in the infield as well i think it makes sense to try to go catcher because they don't have a catching prospect in their top 30 prospects unless you count their number 26 overall prospect, who's 17 years old and listed as a catcher slash outfielder. So they don't know what he's going to do. I think Henry Davis makes the most sense in terms of the prospects that they have in the system. I don't know if they're going to think that way. They might just go best player available, and that could be Marcelo Mayer. But my prediction here is Henry Davis. Yeah, I have Marcelo Mayer going number one to the Pittsburgh Pirates just because... I could see that happening, Brendan, but I do think they're still going to go best player available. You have the number one overall pick. It's not like you're filling any kind of positional need there. I think that Mayer is regarded as the best prospect by a lot of people in this draft. And just from what we've heard, it sounds like they're going with a position player. So I'm thinking not pitcher. I think Jack Leiter has a case to be the best prospect in this draft. But if they're going with a position player, to me, it's going to be Mayer. Uh, number two overall to the Texas Rangers. I think this is where Jack Leiter goes. I agree. I think, I don't know if this is his floor. I think his floor is number four, but I think this is probably the pick for Jack Leiter. The Rangers have their two top prospects in Josh Jung at third base and Sam Huff at catcher. Their best, best pitching prospect is Cole Wynn, who projects at best as a number two, number three overall starter. And their second highest pitching prospect projects best as a late inning reliever. So the Rangers really do not have any pitching prospects in their system that are anywhere close to Jack Leiter. He would come in immediately and probably be their top prospect overall and be far and away their best pitching prospect. Personally, I think Leiter is the best prospect in the draft, and I think he goes number two. Yeah, I don't think he, like I said, I don't think he sneaks to the Orioles at five. So I think he goes somewhere in here, and to me, the Rangers make the most sense. Third overall to the Detroit Tigers. I'm going to go with a, a pick that I've seen mocked a lot of places. A lot of people are connecting the Tigers to Jackson Job, who is the high school pitcher, could go under slot here. And even though we think they're probably better prospects on the board, they want to save some money here and go with a high school arm. Could be. I mean, the Tigers, I think there's a pretty good chance that they go under slot. I don't think they go pitcher because I mean, their pitching prospects are good. They've got Matt Manning, who is, according to MLB Pipeline, an even better pitching prospect than Grayson Rodriguez. They've got Casey Mize currently at the major league level. 
You can always use more pitching, and I think Jackson Job wouldn't be a bad pick here. In my draft, Marcelo Mayer is still on the board, and this is where I have him going. I think this is his floor. I've seen a lot that says if Marcelo Mayer somehow falls to number three, the Tigers are going to take him and not think twice about it. So I think Mayer goes third. That's fair. Uh, and again, we have no idea. So, you know, <laughs> I think that this draft, as much as any of that we've seen in recent years, is a crapshoot. Um, all right. Number four to the Red Sox. Here is where I have Henry Davis going, catcher from Louisville. I think that he probably does not get out of that top four, and I think he goes here. What do you think? So I have a bit of an interesting pick here. Okay. I have Kumar Rocker Ooh. going number four to the Boston Red Sox. From what I've heard, it sounds like the Red Sox are, they want Jack Leiter or they want Henry Davis. Mm. And I think if they can't get either of those options, I don't think they leave the draft without a Vanderbilt pitcher. Gotcha. I think from what everything I've read, it sounds like they want two of the Vanderbilt guys or Henry Davis. And I think they probably get their option C here in Kumar Rocker. I don't know if he's worthy of the number four pick. I think he's probably somewhere in there whether it's six or seven I think is probably more likely where I would pick him on like a big board or something like that but I think he goes to the Red Sox I mean if you you said earlier in the podcast you think he could be still be a number one pitcher on a staff yeah if you're getting a number one pitcher on a staff that's still right all things considered a, a good pick yeah um yeah maybe I guess uh Bloom has Tim Corbin on a speed dial could be could be all right um number five overall the Baltimore Orioles. If you were following my draft, I had Mayor, Leiter, Job, Davis. That leaves an outstanding shortstop prospect falling to the Baltimore Orioles in Jordan Lawler. I don't think he's going to get there. I don't think he's going to fall to the Orioles. But if he does, I think that the Orioles will pay the price pretty much no matter what he asks for. Because I think the talent is just, just so good that you can't pass up on a Jordan Lawler here. I think that they will... You know, be able to sign him, keep him away, away from Vanderbilt. I think that odds are he's going to be off the board, but if he's there, I can see Michael Elias pulling the trigger there. Yeah, so in my mock draft, I've got Henry Davis first, Jack Leiter second, Marcelo Mayer third, and then Kumar Rocker fourth, which means that Jordan Lawler is also on the board for me. However, I have the Orioles taking Khalil Watson and Jordan Lawler falling because outside of, of the top five. Because of price tag, do you think? I think because of price tag. Okay. I think Khalil Watson is not quite the talent level that Jordan Lawler is. However, I think it is close enough where the price tag outweighs the talent gap between those two. Khalil Watson, I think, still has a chance to be a very good major leaguer. He's gotten a bunch of comparisons to guys like Francisco Lindor and Jazz Chisholm. I don't know if the talent gap is so big between him and Lawler that the Orioles will want to pay that Jordan Lawler price tag if he's still there. Yeah, I think... Their mindset going into this is we can always underslot, but if one of the guys in our top tier falls, we will pay up for him. Uh, that's just my, uh, from what I'm, I'm guessing. And from doing this mock draft, I think it becomes even more clear that the Orioles are in a good spot to just kind of sit and wait and see how the rest of the board shakes out, and they're going to get a good player. There are going to be plenty of good players on the board. They are not going to run out of options at number five. Yeah. Even if Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker are both off the board like I had in my mock draft, there are still some decent pitchers that are there. If the Orioles wanted to go pitching, they could go with somebody like Jackson Job. Even if Marcelo Mayer and Jordan Lawler go in the top four, you can still get Khalil Watson. You could still get Brady House. The bottom line is that there are a lot of good options for the Orioles at number five, pretty much no matter who gets taken with the top four picks and what in whatever order. Yeah, and they will still, they do not have the first-round pick that they had last year, the, the compensatory pick, um, or, or rather competitive balance pick yes. that they had last year, but they do have a competitive balance round B pick. So that comes after the second round. So they will still have a lot of high picks. They won't have number 30 like they did last year, and I think that partly factored into the reason that they went under slot with Heston Kerstad. And they were able to get a very good player with that pick last year in Jordan Westbrook, who exactly. has turned out to probably be a top 15, 20 talent in that draft. Absolutely. It's going to be exciting to see what happens on draft night. First night of the draft is Sunday. We will have a live show. Mass in all access. We'll be live with you, breaking down the Orioles' number five overall pick. And uh, stay tuned for that. That'll be a fun time. The last yeah. day of the first half of the regular season. Exciting week with that on Sunday. 
The draft continues Monday and Tuesday. You have the Home Run Derby on Monday. You have the All-Star Game Tuesday. Going to be good stuff. Uh, we talked earlier to Sarah Lanks of Major League Baseball about the MLB Draft Combine. Good conversation. She is one of the best in the business and just one of the smartest uh, and tr- honestly, one of the ho- most hardworking and most genuine lovers of baseball. So give this interview a listen. Now we're joined on Mass and All Access by Sarah Langs, statistician extraordinaire with Major League Baseball. Sarah, thanks so much for hopping on. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. It's been a long time coming to have you on the podcast. You've been on O's Extra before on Masson, and I don't think there's any bigger ambassador for the game. Every time I open Twitter, I feel like I see one of your tweets that says baseball is the best. So thank you for being such a big promoter of this great game that we all love. Oh my gosh, that's that's very high praise. Thank you. Thank you very much. But yeah, I just I love it. And anytime I can share, you know, the different parts that make me love the sport so much, I absolutely am going to and I'm glad that people agree in most cases, which is awesome. Well, one of the parts of the game that you do love is, of course, the draft, which is coming up. And you just came from down in North Carolina, the first ever MLB draft combine. First off, what was that experience like? Because it was a new uh, kind of test by Major League Baseball, something that obviously has been done in other sports in the NFL and NBA. But what was the experience of the MLB Draft Combine like? And what was it like being there in person? It was awesome. I mean, it just felt like a little baseball haven, you know? I mean, it's really, it had that same feel as you get if you're in the city of the all-star game and you're walking around and there's the play ball park and there's so many different things going on. Or if you've been to Williamsport for Little League, I haven't been to Omaha, but I imagine the same sort of feeling where it just felt like everything was baseball. And that USA Baseball Complex down in Cary, North Carolina, I'd never been to that complex before. It's incredible. I mean, they have all of these fields. Everything is so well kept. And again, you just feel like you're in a little baseball heaven. So it was really awesome. And I thought that the event went really, really well. I mean, there was just so much excitement and, you know, Harold Reynolds walking in there and all of these kids so excited to see him and everybody was great. But I think the excitement that he had and that you heard from him on air really encapsulates just everything, everything that went on there. Absolutely. And it's great to see some of these prospects that maybe people have not seen or heard from, but they've just seen the name in passing to get a closer look at them and to hear from them and to kind of discover what kind of kids they are. From your perspective, what kind of tracking data was available to you guys down there? So it was really awesome. And that's a big part of why I was there was to help us sort of analyze the information we were getting. So there was Ripsodo tracking and uh, TrackMan tracking that was taking place during BP sessions. And I think during the games as well. And while guys were doing bullpens, you know, throwing off the mound. So there was a lot of information. I mean, the, the quantity of stuff in the various spreadsheets and everything that gets tracked by those Uh, machines and those systems is far beyond I think what fans are really even remotely familiar with but what we were able to do was really pull out the things that I think do translate so some stuff that I tracked while we were down there was who had the most hard hit batted ball so that's 95 plus mile an hour exit velocity and looking at some high individual exit velocities you know these were kind of things that I think fans can just fans of even just major league baseball have become accustomed to in terms of, okay, you hear like a hundred mile an hour about a ball, you know that that's pretty hard. And then of course, on the pitching side, I think that stuff is a little bit more well-known already. Mostly we were looking at pitch velocity, something that I took an interest in just because it was tracked on there was looking at extension. Uh, and it was really interesting, especially cause there are, you know, a couple of those pitchers are really tall, you know, these guys are already pretty much full grown. So uh, you can really glean a lot from that too. So just trying to make major comparisons and you know point out where you know is this a fastball that we could realistically see on a mound in the majors or is there still a ways to go here that kind of stuff interesting when you mention extension and you talk about that with when it comes to pitchers how does that provide an advantage for a pitcher in theory for fans who may not be as well versed in terms of those kind of deep analytics 
For sure. So extension is how far from the pitching rubber the pitcher is actually releasing the ball. So we know that the pitching rubber is 60 feet, six inches from home plate, but guys are not standing right on the rubber and throwing the ball from right there. They're obviously reaching forward. That's their whole motion. So guys who are really tall and have really large wingspans will be actually releasing the ball even closer. And everyone, every single pitcher is obviously releasing the ball closer than 60 feet, six inches. But guys like Tyler Glass now uh, really comes to mind for me and Bailey Ober right now on the Twins as well. They have abnormally long extensions compared to, or not abnormally, I should say, but well above major league average. So they're releasing the ball like more than seven feet in front of that. So if you think about the split second reaction time and standing there against a major league pitch, every second fewer and every foot or inch fewer that it's being thrown is giving you less time to react to it. Obviously the mound removed back. This was a conversation at some point that's giving batters more time to react. So this is essentially moving it forward, not by any sort of uh, weird means, but just by how long a guy's arm is. So I thought that was really interesting to see. And it's just cool because that's one of the things that TrackMan is tracking in the moment immediately. I mean, we literally a screen in front of us and data was just coming through every single pitch that was thrown, every single ball that was hit. So uh, that was one that I tried to sort of introduce people to beyond just pitch below for pitchers. That's fascinating. I like to think of how that might've been used decades and decades ago, of course, from the Orioles perspective, what Jim Palmer's extension might've been like as he's going towards the plate, that kind of technology would certainly have been useful a while ago, but it's, I'm glad that you have the use of it now, when you talk about pitchers and the pitchers that you saw down there, were there any names of guys that you saw throw? They really stuck out to you as analytics darlings, if you will? Well, you know, there were there was a one, there was one pitcher who we were talking about uh, with extension. And I want to say that that was Spencer Schwellenbach, but I might be wrong there. I will try to figure that out while I'm talking to you about this. But when we looked at Velo, he was towards the top. So looking at just some of the fastest pitches that we saw on our Friday uh, while we were there during live workouts, there were workouts that happened in the week leading up to it as well. Uh, Spencer Schwellenbach and Steve Hager, I believe I said that right, um, were two guys who were throwing really hard. So uh, Hager is from Michigan. He's the 100th ranked prospect, uh, according to MLB Pipeline draft prospect, tra- prospect, excuse me. And he's uh, he's 6'5", so he was definitely one guy we were looking at with that extension. And then Schwellenbach was another, uh, and he's from, he's uh, goes to Nebraska, excuse me. He And uh, he's a 54th ranked prospect. And he's actually, I believe he was the one who is a two-way player, and only recently, so he's a shortstop as well. And I believe Jim Callis and uh, Dan O'Dowd were talking about, you know, we had a long conversation about the concept of uh, two-way players because obviously with Shohei Otani, there's even more conversation about that concept than ever before. But it's really interesting with the draft because you get guys where as a shortstop, as a power hitting shortstop, he might be close to first round talent. As a pitcher, they're a little bit less sure. And I think that's really interesting just in the current climate where we see someone doing both to this incredible extent that shouldn't even be real and yet it is. And we're so lucky to see that. And it is interesting to think about this draft and specifically these two way players now that we're seeing the peak Otani. And it was uh, Hazer who was the extension guy, by the way, not Schwellenbach. So. You, you don't need to remind Orioles fans about Shohei Otani considering the weekend that he just had <laughs> against the Baltimore Orioles. But that is fascinating because obviously a lot of these guys are so athletic that they are head and shoulders above their competition and above even their teammates in college or high school to the point where, yeah, they can do both at a pretty high level. Talking about the hitters, were there any guys that stuck out to you as guys that were hitting the ball especially hard? Yeah, so I I did a whole list of like most hard hit batted balls just over those couple of days. And, uh, you know, one guy who really stood out, he wasn't at the top of the list, but he was within that top five to 10, uh, was a shortstop named Ryan Spike. So he's a high schooler, and I'm not sure his exact whether he's expected to um, be drafted or, you know, with high schoolers, it's always the question, are they going to go play wherever they're committed or are they going to uh, actually uh, take being drafted? But he was really, really athletic and it was really cool to see. We saw him 
during his shortstop drills and everything else. And then he came out and he had like 25 hard hit batted balls over the course of the week, which was amongst some of the leaders. And, you know, I feel like we're so conditioned now to think about uh, power hitting shortstops. I mean, the current shortstops have really changed how we perceive the position, I think, in a lot of ways and what we expect out of it. And it's interesting to see that. I mean, a lot of times high school shortstops end up profiling to maybe end up more at first base or somewhere in the outfield uh, at the major league level, just with the quickness that's required, the footwork and everything else. But is is really interesting to see a guy who is a shortstop at this point hitting the ball really hard like that because I think that, you know, that's something that's growing more and more. And when you were on air on MLB Network, when you were at the Combine itself, you mentioned the fact that middle round draft picks might be the ones who benefit the most from having this Combine. And you specifically mentioned Cedric Mullins and Trey Mancini as two of the you know rising stars in this game who came from the middle rounds of the draft. Is that who you see as the main benefactors of having this combine as opposed to maybe the guys who are going to go early in the first round? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a wonderful event and, you know, I look forward to even more and more participation in it in the future, but certainly we know that those, you know, top tier first rounders, they're going to be top tier first rounders. But I think that this is a really, really helpful sort of, you know, improvement ground for those guys, again, I don't think anyone is going to go from, oh, he was going to be taken in the 20th round. Now we're taking him second overall or in the second round even. But I think when you're talking about guys moving up a round or two, like 15th, or you know what, we like him in the 10th now, or sixth, maybe we do kind of like him in the third now, something like that. That that was sort of my assessment. Obviously, I don't, um, I don't talk to scouts. I don't talk to GMs in that way to sort of figure out how they're feeling about guys. But I, I do think that guys who have that talent and for whatever reason it didn't get to fully show through at that point could maybe put themselves on another level with an event like this. And, you know, some other topics that kind of came up in conversation with that is also, you know, sometimes guys who play on the East Coast, whether it's high school or college, their seasons are really short just because of weather, right? And so maybe someone who dealt with a bunch of rainouts and snowouts in like March and their season was 10 games shorter than it was supposed to be. They didn't make it to Omaha or they didn't make it to their high school championship, whatever else. They get some more time in front of scouts. I think that that's another um, sort of area of guys who could benefit. But, you know, called out, obviously, yes, uh, Mancini and Cedric Mullins. I remember talking about Marcus Semien. I know uh, Jim Callis was telling me how Semien didn't have a really good uh, final year at Cal. And obviously, I mean, now he's, you know, a starting second baseman uh, for the All-Star team. But he'd been a pretty good player in his career. And maybe I think he was a sixth rounder. Maybe he would have been more like a fourth. Um, but I think that it's a really great, I just think it's a great environment and that's such an optimistic and positive thing to think about that someone who, you know, could maybe move up a couple of rounds and really help themselves there and start to establish themselves. That's great to hear. Do you think that this combine is something that will continue based on what you've heard from the people that you talked to down there and the people that you've talked to since you've gotten back? You know, I don't have any uh, special info or anything like that, but, uh, you know, it was the first inaugural and I think that tells you all you need to know. And I, I mean, again, I can't speak for anyone who actually organized it, but I can certainly tell you that being down there, that was an outstanding vibe. And that was certainly something that, you know, I think should be part of baseball for years to come. And I, I look forward to future, you know. Absolutely. Maybe Mass and All Access can make a trip down there. I'm, I'm speaking directly to our bosses as I say that. <laughs> Sarah Langs from, from Major League Baseball, thanks so much for hopping on. We really appreciate your insight. Of course. Thank you so much for having me.